Blame Skype. I will. I will. All right. And we wouldn't be having this issue with Zoom. episode of the MacGuffin Podcast, the movie review podcast that dreams are made of, and this is the first and maybe the last video episode uh, we were trying here. So I've, um, if you've been following me on YouTube, and I don't know why you would, uh, we I have been playing around with OBS Studio, and hopefully we might have some like video segments and things like that. Uh, so we're trying that out now. <laughs> I like how exciting it is, like... Just two dudes in their room staring. Like I know, it's it's the same content. It's just now you can see the sausage get made. Literally, yeah. And also, I totally forgot last night. Right before I went to bed, I just had this like sudden urge to shave my beard off because I was like it was like getting itchy and it wasn't like even anymore. And it was going to have to take like either a subtle trim or just shave it and let it grow back. And then I. Went to bed and went, shit, I'm going to be on video tomorrow. You're a coward. And you have, like, a massive beard. Like, you were, like, 98% beard now. I I actually trimmed this today because it was getting out of hand. It was getting (laughs) uh, nuts. Some might argue still out of hand. Oh no, man! This is this is great. This is where it needs to be. That's that's ideal. This is yeah. Okay. Yeah, Welcome get- to the beard cast with the boys. <laughs> uh, actually, the ep- uh, this episode we're doing, um, what is the name of that Charlie Kaufman film that I can never remember? I'm thinking of ending things. It's based on a book. Yes, we're going to be reviewing that. And for the streaming homework uh, that you assigned last week, we are going to be recording uh, a review for The Frozen Ground. Uh, Nicholas Cage joint that for whatever reason was trending on Netflix Netflix top 10 even though it's a 2013 movie yeah I don't know somehow that like slipped in on the algorithm something and... happened I have yeah. theories I have theories oh, oh okay all right well, <laughs> well we'll get to your theories we'll have to and um let's see oh well actually at the beginning of the episode, I wanted to introduce this. I had this idea. So we were talking a little bit a while ago on Twitter about what um, what's the worst prequel series in a while. Okay. We, we were? Kind of. It came up, I think. <laughs> <laughs> it, it generally comes up. But uh, we were talking about, like, the Fantastic Beasts trilogy mm-hmm. or what is yet to become a trilogy, but will soon be a trilogy, I suppose. I don't know. I, mm. I'm losing confidence. It's up in the air. Yeah. It's up in the air right now. But um, rather than just, uh, you know, ranking them or whatever, I'm going to do it this way, Andy Cohen style. F. Mary Kill. <laughs> <laughs> uh, F. Mary Kill, the Hobbit trilogy... Why are you acting like this isn't an explicit fucking podcast? I don't know. <laughs> okay. All right. Okay. F. Mary Kill. F. Mary Kill. The Hobbit trilogy. The uh, Star Wars prequels. And the uh, two out of maybe three Fantastic Beasts. Oh, this is rough. Okay. Man. And by Star Wars prequels, 
I, I'm talking about the the Anakin Skywalker trilogy. Yeah, you're not including Solo or Rogue One into yeah, that equation, none right? Of that. Just the okay. the uh, Lucas Lucas prequels. Kill those. Kill them dead. Ooh. Bam, gone. Kill really? them. Yeah. Uh, huh, I don't know now. Uh, <laughs> um, fuck the Hobbit movies. Beca- <sighs> fuck the Hobbit movies because they're at least no. You don't know. Okay. And by Change fuck, it. I mean have actual intercourse with, not yeah. like. Not like fuck those movies. Get out of here. <laughs> yeah, I'm. I'm talking about like I'm inviting you into my bed. Uh. Okay. But I don't necessarily want you in my life all the time. That's the big difference between fucking Mary, obviously. Uh, I guess. <laughs> um, okay. That's how the game works. <laughs> Fuck the Harry Potter prequels because they're like set in, uh, you know, like the 20s or 30s or 40s or whenever they're set and everybody's real hot and like they've got Gatsby vibes. So fuck them. Okay. And uh, I would I would marry the Hobbit solely because uh, I feel like Martin Freeman's a good listener. All right. So you get to pick and choose which characters from the Hobbit are going to be in this scenario. I just I think that's the least offensive of them. Like if the Hobbit movies had c- just come out, say there's no Lord of the Rings movies. Mm-hmm. I, I would have been like, well, that was whatever. But they're disappointing because Lord of the Rings is so fucking good and because they're they're so disappointing mediocre. enough because it's like, well, you what what are you doing? Um but they're I think there's enough good that you could edit the three movies into one good Hobbit movie. I don't know that you can say the same about Star Wars or Fantastic Beasts. Yeah. And Star Wars is both a bad movie and they're really ugly movies. Like they, the cinematography is not good. The special effects have not aged well. Uh, The color palette is so gross and shitty that I just kill them. Just also there's, they started all this. No, they definitely did. They, that set the precedent for these bad, these bad, uh, I don't know. Are we doing a movie news? Because <laughs> I have some fucking stuff we could talk about when it comes to bullshit prequels. Yeah, no, I, I feel you. I definitely feel you on that. Um, it's just... So what... What are, Yeah, I guess... What are your answers? Uh, fuck, the, Mary kill. They're different than yours. They're different than yours. I'll say that. I'm going to say... Hmm. I say kill Fantastic Beasts. I, I think those are so boring. They, they offer nothing. They, yeah. It's completely em- empty calories. There's nothing there. They're barely movies. Um, we were just talking, you know, whether or not we even wanted uh, part three in that, let alone will there be one. And I kind of feel like that's where everybody is right now. Well, for various reasons. But yeah. Well, yeah. I, yeah. I, mean, I mean, when two out of three have already come out and everyone's like, I don't care if to see how this ends. Then that's 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 a problem for your movie series. So yeah. kill that. I don't care. Well, also it was like they were getting real ambitious. They were talking about it being like five movies. I mm. do not think it has 
the legs for five movies, plus as problematic as both J.K. Rowling and Johnny Depp are anymore. Like, does oh, anybody yeah. even want this? It is like the cancel trilogy at this point. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, kill that. And um, But I just want it on the record. I didn't really care for those movies before all of the controversies. They can um, go back and listen to our reviews. If they choose so. Uh, also, I think that the other two, the Hobbit trilogy and the Lord of the Rings uh, prequels, as bad as they are. You mean Star Wars? Yes. <laughs> the, the Hobbit and the Star Wars prequels. As bad as they are, they're kind of like grand disasters. Yeah, and there's, I think there is fun bits to be had in both, whereas the first Fantastic Beast movie has, like, one okay B story, Mm -hmm. but everything else is, yeah, pretty boring and blah. Yeah, so I'm going to say, I'm going to say Fuck Hobbit, because I'm kind of one and done on that. There were some things I had fun with, some certain battle scenes or whatever. Martin Freeman's great in those movies, but basically... I don't need to see them ever again. Yeah, um, I, I guess I, I'm glad that I saw them, but I don't need to see them again. I actually kind of want to just to see if I feel any differently about them now than when I was like, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. would I feel differently if I just knocked them all out in an afternoon versus waiting a year between each release? I don't know. Yeah. And then I'm going to marry Star Wars prequels. And, I'll, and I'll, the only reason I say this is because even though... I don't think they're good movies. They're fascinating to watch. And the further you are away from it, the more fascinating it is. Especially seeing how, like, the franchise keeps developing and they they keep trying to pretend it never happened. So now it's like a giant, bloated, uh, multi-million dollar version of the holiday film. The holiday special. Except... There's this weird thing where after the new trilogy came out, which uh, was, you know, mixed at best. Right. There's this weird resurgent fandom for people. No, yeah, like, there, there is a little bit of, uh, whoa, whoa, something happened to my mic. You got real, I got my, I got really loud there for a second. You got excited. You got heated. No, uh, there was a, there is a, there is something kind of going on now where uh, there's a bit of a revisionist history on those movies for sure. Yeah. And I don't like it. So fuck them and kill them. Do, do both. <laughs> well, oof, now you're getting in some sketchy territory. All right. He, <laughs> I don't know if we actually came to any sort of consensus there, but if anybody, uh, you know, <laughs> find us on yes, Twitter at MacGuffin, at MacGuffin pod and tell us your F Mary kill on those. Also <laughs> on Twitter. There was this thing that kind of trended yesterday, and we both ended up participating. So I figured it was free content. Uh, four movies you're pretty sure you like more than anyone else. Go ahead and pull up yours, and I'll go ahead and read mine while you're looking for yours. And I just want a little bit of reasoning for why you included what you included. Okay. And I'll, I'll, I'll explain. So my four movies that I picked, and the way that it worked is you found four images or whatever... Um, and then you just like a retweet deal. So, um, the, the four movies that I picked was Ghostbusters 2, uh, the movie Go from the nineties, um, Clueless and Phantom of the Paradise. Um, 
and I didn't put a ton of thought into this. I probably could have could have put more if I really cared that much. But um, I'll explain. I'll explain. So Ghostbusters two, I think, is just as good as the first one. I don't understand that not only that people say that the first one is significantly better, but that the that Ghostbusters 2 is a bad movie. And I have heard that take. It's kind of popular in some circles to say that Ghostbusters 2 was always bad. Nobody ever liked it. It is like, you know, there's only been one good Ghostbusters movie, blah, blah, blah. I've seen that take. That I just don't understand. I think Ghostbusters 2 is like so consistent to the tone and the spirit of the first one. It's just a different mystery. To me, saying Ghostbusters 2 is worse than the original Ghostbusters is like saying Last Crusade is worse than Raiders of the Lost Ark. Well, I think I, I, I think some people might argue that it's closer to saying Temple of Doom is worse than Raiders of the Lost Ark, which is objectively true. Yes, that's why I didn't say it that way. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so there are there are things about Ghostbusters two that I think have sort of become canonized um, yeah. outside of the movie itself. Uh, like it's well reported that uh, Bill Murray had no interest in doing it because he doesn't do sequels, even though. He did a fucking Garfield sequel, so fuck you. Yeah, really. Uh, you know, so I think there's there's weird baggage with its sort of like problematic. It, it also like you know, uh, it was a hard movie to get made. I, I believe there was like some some problems with the production and stuff. So I think stuff like that kind of took hold, mm-hmm. and then when the sort of Ghostbusters zeitgeist has become what it is. I think it's easy now for people to be like to look back and be like, "Well, there's only one ghost. Well, only one good Ghostbusters." Even though I agree with you, I think I don't think it's as good as the original, but I think it's good enough. I think it's and the reason it, I've always thought this, so the reason why I think that our opinion or our is be, has something to do with our age group that we've always lived in a world with two Ghostbusters. I mean, yeah. for the most part, we were like toddlers. When there was a time when there was only one Ghostbusters film. But, you know, we basically grown up with both of them. But then I think back, I wouldn't say that about RoboCop. I wouldn't say that about um, the Back to the Future movies. Like, there's a lot of movies that have multiple sequels that I've pretty much lived with my whole life that I can definitely see a quality difference happening. With the Ghostbusters movies, I don't really. There's only a couple things about Ghostbusters 2 that I'm not that into. At the very, very end, when they all end up in the painting that Vigo was in, after yeah, you're they defeat him. about that. That's, That's just, such a great ending. It's cheesy. It's, it's, it's just... It's fun. It's... Okay. Well, it's the only thing it's to me... It's a comedy that, movie. It's like, I, you know... I know. I get it. And I think it's a funny... It's like a funny beat to end on. I, I actually think <laughs> that's a great ending. All right. I, well, I you think know, in some, I think that's mileage in- may vary on that, but I think that part's a little cheesy. And then I will say that the whole idea of like uh, Dana and uh, Peter having to break up sometime between movies so that they could have the exact same sort of 
relationship yeah. where he's trying to get her back instead of getting her. But it's, it's they could have the exact same dynamic as they did in the first movie. Um, I see. I can get that that's a little contrived, although the baby thing really changes it. Because then there's this whole thing of, can Peter be a father? And he didn't want to be, and that's why they broke up. And so there is some character development still within that. Also, yeah. I think they develop um, Rick Moranis and uh, uh, Janine, the uh, the yeah. secretary. I think, and I, it's a slightly darker film. I think Vigo is maybe a more interesting character than Gozer, personally. Um, so I, I think that's kind of sixes. I, I think... Uh, the the only thing is, I will say the second movie is, it's just a little messier, uh, in every sense of the word. Like it's a little bit grosser and <laughs> the plot definitely like it meanders a little bit more. Whereas the first, the first movie, it, it, and I agree with you. I think there's this weird in between period of Ghostbusters one and two that kind of bums people out. Like, in Ghostbusters 2, they haven't been Ghostbusters because they legally couldn't be, you know, so it's... Right, so they're doing, like, it, birthday parties and stuff. But I, th- I actually think all that stuff's interesting. But but it, it's kind of the same thing as with Peter and Dana. It's all set up to sort of retread the same plot points. It's yeah. like, well, now they get back together, and now they get famous again. So it's like... Yeah, it's, and I, instead of a marshmallow man, you have the Statue of Liberty, and yeah, I mean, I can see like beat per beat how they follow the formula, but it's uh, I I don't know, I still love it. All right, and I, then, I think it's not fair that it's a bad movie. I agree with you there. I think it's I think it's a perfectly great follow up to a great movie. Yeah, um, and then I'll go through these other ones quick. Go, I just think is still kind of underseen. It's not that I think most people who've seen it and were around when it was a thing. Um, we'll talk about it and say that it's a good movie, but I think at this point it's kind of a product of the late nineties. A lot of people just don't talk about it the same way they do about something like clerks or Pulp Fiction or whatever. And I think it's up there with those. I think it's totally fun. Um, and, uh, you know, great kind of like end of the nineties slacker with a little bit of like crime movie sprinkled in like post Tarantinian kind of thing. Um, clueless. Here's the deal. There's a lot of people who love that movie and it's now been canonized and it's going to show up on like every best comedy list. And, um, everyone's pretending now that they've loved it forever, but I, I don't, I don't think that was always the case. I mean, it was always well-reviewed and stuff like that, but I think, um, I just want to like pretentious piece of shit. (laughs) I just want to put my, people loved it, but I loved it. Morstis. Yes, I, I will I will go toe-to-toe uh, with anybody on on who loves Clueless more than me. So that one's competitive, but I'm still saying uh, probably. And then Phantom of the Paradise is maybe that's just a my generation thing where I feel like I was talking about that movie and getting my friends to see it. And I did, it was my little like, oh, my God, have you seen this fucking crazy movie from the 70s that Brian, Brian De Palma made? showing it at birthday parties and things like that. I feel like um, uh, like right after then Scream Factory put out that Blu-ray and then Malcolm Ingram made that documentary. And then now it's, and I think it's uh, uh, Edgar Wright talked about it a little bit uh, in like a top 10 video kind of thing. So now people are talking about that movie again. But when I, uh, 
discovered it. I, I found it because of, um, uh, some like obscure YouTuber, like basement dweller type horror geeks who, who were fans of it. And then, um, there was a copy in the $5 bin at Walmart. But yeah, I'm glad that the movie is, is appreciated in the way that I feel it always should be. It's a bonkers movie. It's fun. Uh, I have always thought that the Phantom's costume would make an incredible cosplay. Oh, yeah. You, like, for, for you especially, you should do that. It's just such a good... Like, I fucking love his helmet, his Zex mm-hmm. Marquis helmet uh, from Gundam Wing. Um, oh, wow. <laughs> that was a... That was a poll. Yeah. I had no the fuck idea what you were talking about. <laughs> yeah, you know now, though. Now I do, uh, yes. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I, I think that that movie makes sense for you. Uh, okay, so my the movies I pulled, I felt like I maybe could have thought about this more. I just, I kind of went with my gut on mm-hmm. it a little bit. The Transformers cartoon movie the like 89 cartoon or whatever because when i i think that was probably the movie i saw the most as a kid um like i remember at the grocery store they they had a copy at smith's the grocery store and i basically rented it every week like i could have bought the movie for as much as we spent on renting it yeah um so it's just like one of those ones that got stuck in my brain as a kid and it's like comfort food. Like I could literally put it on it anytime and, and watch it and be totally fine. Um, uh, I also, I picked the crow, um, because for a long time that was my go-to is like, that's my favorite movie ever. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm not quite so angsty and jaded (laughs) as I was. I wasn't like, I, I'm not quite like, Oh, it can't rain all the time. It's fucking brilliant anymore. <laughs> uh, but I, again, I, I literally had this movie memorized. Like, I could quote every line of dialogue. I don't know if I still could. It's been a little bit. Maybe I should revisit that this Halloween. I picked Mystery Men uh, because I quote this movie all the fucking time. And I feel like this movie was so ahead of its time. For sure. I think if this movie came out now, it would be like a... And it kind of was still uh, uh It did all right when it came out. But I think if it came out now, like, it's franchisable. Um, well, everything's franchisable now, for better or worse. But I actually think that uh, that's a movie that needs, like, the Scream Factory treatment and all of yeah. that stuff. Like... That movie has a cult base, like, in a way that, like, Galaxy Quest or whatever um, from totally. the, that same time period. But, like, for whatever reason, the, like, just hasn't Hollywood world yet. hasn't hasn't learned that yet. That, that there's a there's a hungry fan base for Mystery Men media right now. To- totally. Uh, uh, and as much as I'm not a fan of the 20-year-old sequels, I would still love a Mystery Men 2. Um, mm. So... Get on that, Hollywood. It would have to be the right people involved, but... Yeah, I mean, it would... uh, Yeah, totally. Including Um, the cast. Yeah, it's just such a good fucking movie. Oh, my God. We we watched it at the beginning of all this quarantine nonsense, and for the most part, there's a couple jokes that have aged poorly, but for the most part, I think it still holds up pretty well. Yeah. Um, 
And then the last I haven't movie, seen it in a long time. It yeah, it, and especially with there is so much room for postmodern superhero conversations and superhero movies that like I I think that we're just getting to the tip of that iceberg of the sort of post superhero experience. Yeah, at uh, this point that conversation's almost getting a little old. Um uh it would have to it would I don't have know, to man. justify that. But. I'm watching the the boys on Amazon right now, and it is a fucking hoot. And the boys are coming for you right now. Yeah, they're <laughs> yeah. Uh, anyway, little San Diego uh, ambiance in the background there. <laughs> and then the last movie I picked, um, I might actually want to substitute this one out, but the last one I picked was Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Two. And I say I like that movie more than anybody else because, yes, it's MCU and, yes, it's a very popular franchise. But it's consistently, like, at the top of my list for the MCU. And I just – I think it's – it does everything the first one does. But This is your clueless. This is, like, you know that the, you know, the being the biggest fan of this movie is a little more competitive – than the rest of your list, but you're willing to to bat for it yeah, anyway. I'm willing to, to go out there and and uh, it's just so fucking good. But the the one that I think I want to mention uh, gets an honorable mention for me is the Thirteenth Warrior. Uh, I think that movie was also kind of a little ahead of its time, uh, and it's always kind of in the back of my brain. Yeah, um, and I quote it pretty constantly too. Yeah, that's another one of those very our generation movies. Like, if you're even five plus years older or younger, you just don't give a fuck about that movie. Um, yeah. Specifically, I went with uh, to I think the L.A. Comic Con um, with a couple friends, and we went to the one of those uh, Rotten Tomatoes panels, the your your opinion sucks panels, and mm-hmm. one one of my friends went to get in line to argue for the Thirteenth Warrior. And, you know, the, the critics that they have up there are, you know, in their mid-40s to 50s or so. And uh, they were all, like, unanimously like, eh, whatever, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I well, I, I think it came out just at the right time before this sort of, like, That medieval... Lord of the rings type stuff. Yeah, yeah it, it, like, it... There's a there is such a want for that kind of like it's not quite fantasy but like yeah the sort of swords and sandals representation um yeah it, and it does it in a like a uh, a well done easily consumable like something like 90 minutes whereas you know for the most part of that it's a little bit shorter it's a little bit more to the point than say like your gladiator or troy which are going to have these epic run times because they weren't thinking about franchisability so it's like let's get it all out in a fucking mm-hmm. three hour epic and Troy was another one of those movies that got reviewed terribly but I kind of liked it for what it was I, I could throw that I don't know if I, I don't know if it holds up as well now I haven't watched it in a long time but I liked it at the time I fucking loved that movie when it came out <laughs> uh, yeah maybe maybe I need to revisit Troy and the crow <laughs> right All right, well, that was that. Um, And again, if anybody wants to participate, it's trending on Twitter right now. Find us 
I'm over at VC Cassidy. You're over at Keith Foster Kid on Twitter. Um, find us and uh, put your responses under ours or retweet us or whatever. Uh, let's go ahead and move into the review for the week. This was uh, released on Netflix. The name of the film is I'm Thinking of Ending Things, the new film by Charlie Kaufman, written and directed, and it's an adaptation from a book. This is the second film I want to say. Or did he did he direct Amnalisa? Because that's the only movie of his I don't think I've seen. I believe he did. Yes, he he directed. he wrote it. He wrote it and co-directed also, it. Yeah, yeah. So this would be the I guess his third film that he's directed. He did uh, uh, Synecdoche, New York, um, and uh, Amnalisa, which I haven't seen, and then this movie. And of course, he was a writer on Bringing or uh, Being John Malkovich adaptation, uh, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. And he writes these like existential comedies, you know, dark comedies most of the time, dealing with sad sack protagonists uh, in some sort of Kafkaesque nightmare reality where they have to overcome the some phys- physical or visual representation of their own neurosis. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, and that- there's there's a lot of that going on in this movie as well. But I'll let you describe. What is the plot? Oh, great! You get me. Yeah, I have to describe it. <laughs> the plot of uh, of uh, I'm thinking of ending things because this one does diverge from his tropes in some interesting ways. Yeah. So the the story of this is uh, a young woman is going with her boyfriend to meet his parents for the first time. Uh, it's like a snowy winter day. Um, and, and they're going, they're trekking through the, the snow to meet his parents, um, for dinner at his, his childhood home farmhouse. Yes. That's the story. That's the, the the bare bones of it. Yeah. It's it's basically, you know, boyfriend takes girlfriend to meet the parents for the first time. And yeah, that is an always an awkward scenario, no matter how well adjusted your family is um, or how well your relationship is going. But it's of course all the more stressful when your family isn't well adjusted whatsoever at all. And your relationship isn't going well either. Um, and things may or may not be real. <laughs> and reality itself is fracturing and splintering around you. Yeah. Um, so, I'm just going to tell you my initial thoughts of this movie. Uh, I fucking hated it while I was watching it. Oh, okay. All right. We'll see where you go. But then it sort of got stuck in my head. Uh, It sort of got like it. It sort of stuck to my ribs. And the more I thought about it, the more I was like, I don't know if I hate this or if I just hate myself. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, no, that like, so this movie, it is, it doesn't give you a lot to hold on to. Mm -hmm. Uh, It doesn't give you a lot to ground you before it starts going fucking batshit. And yeah, I feel like, I feel like that is something that separates itself from other Charlie Kaufman stuff. Like I, I feel like even his, his weird stuff. You know, he is known for very idiosyncratic, very neurotic 
uh, uh, stuff that does like feel surreal, but but also has some grounding of a story. This I didn't really feel that. Like we don't know uh, really much about the the main girl. Um, we don't really know, even though we uh, get her interior monologue. Um, we don't really know any concrete details about her as a character. Um, and the details we do get seem to be changing and shifting. Um, same with Jesse Plemons character. Mm -hmm. Uh, and at the beginning of the movie, it is just so awkward and hard to watch. Uh, and it doesn't get better for a while. It doesn't get better until it goes into like full on existential crisis mode. Mm -hmm. Um, but at that point, I was like, okay, well, at least I can relate. Well, there's uh, a really long... Uh, the movie's kind of broken up into these long conversation set pieces, basically. Yeah. Um, there's a little bit that kind of happens interstitially between them. Uh, but for the most part, you know, there's it starts with that like half-hour scene of just uh, Jesse Plemons and uh, Jesse Buckley, who plays the uh, the girl in the film. Of just them talking in the car for about 35 minutes. And I was wondering, because I, I don't know that much about the movie going in. I was wondering, is this going to be the movie? Are they going to commit to the single location thing? Because this I'm, is I'm, almost two and a half hours. Um, and then, of yeah. course, we get to the parents' house and things start changing. But um, And this early conversation is just so... <laughs> awkward and i am like crawling out of my skin it is just like we know that they haven't been together for very long um and just like the, this awkward silence and and again yeah. we're we're privy to the the main woman's point of view we hear her interior thoughts so like the first thing we hear her say when he shows up is i'm thinking of ending things mm -hmm. um presumably their relationship and so it's just like this this tension underlying the whole conversation that I'm like I just am not enjoying this. Like I've I've been in that situation where I'm like uh the, is this the last time I talk to this person? Uh you know, I I don't want to be in this relationship anymore. And so to me I was just like this is not a good time. <laughs> <laughs> no, and the movie doesn't uh the movie isn't like fully a comedy although there are uh, a lot of comedic elements in the film. Um, in that sort yeah. of like sarcastic, self-deprecating Charlie Kaufman sort of way, you would you would expect. Uh, but there is a lot of more dramatic beats as well. And especially as as the the reality of the film, the objective reality or the subjective reality starts to become less and less clear and starts and the movie becomes more and more dreamlike. Um, mm -hmm. then I feel like uh, there's less like relationship satire and that kind of stuff. I actually yeah. really like sort of the dry humor all throughout, even just that long conversation set piece at the beginning. I was really enjoying that. Um, and I, I, uh, did you see Synecdoche, New York? I haven't. Right. So that was, yeah, I believe that was the first film that Kaufman directed. Philip Superman Hoffman starred in and it has a lot of similarities with this as far as his the rest of his oeuvre. Um, I think that one is the most like this one. And that one... Oh, interesting. Because I, I was comparing this a lot in my head to Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. 
real the relationship stuff for sure. And I think in a weird, we'll get to it. But I think that there's there's themes of this film that yeah. are talking directly about his other movies. Um, okay. Yeah, I mean, yeah, and and, and in also, conversation like, with with some of that stuff. But there, there's even shots uh, that I thought were very similar to Eternal Sunshine. Like, yeah. uh, there's there's this moment with like the washing machine that r- reminded me a lot mm-hmm. of uh, Eternal Sunshine. There's also this um, that like when the car is parked on the ice, it remind or on the snow, like. It remind it's like the same shot but inverted of um, Eternal Sunshine when they're just like laying on the ice. It's mm-hmm. it's the shot that they use for like the DVD cover and the posters and stuff. So it's like right, v- yeah. Visually, it reminded me a lot. It was like of an that. overhead like, shot of the car. Also, a lot of like the the like sort of trick editing to um, subvert reality, uh, mm-hmm. and, and like that's how we get clues that this maybe isn't exactly happening the way we think it is. Right. And, and uh, Eternal Sunshine was directed by Michelle Gondry, who's like the king of the in-camera trick editing special mm-hmm. effects. Um, so he definitely brought that to that movie. But I think that that Kaufman, both in Synecdoche, New York, and this movie, employs that as well. And both movies... Uh, kind of do the same thing where they start you off with a narrative that you're familiar with and characters that you're familiar with. And then as the film proceeds, um, reality starts to get less and less objective and more and more subjective. We and should call this the uh, You Know You're Going to Die Someday trilogy. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> you, yeah. you and Everyone You Love is Going to Die trilogy. <laughs> <laughs> um, it is kind of a downer that way. I will say, uh, when once we get to to the parents' house, and uh, we meet Tony Collette as his mother. Um, uh, what's the actor who plays the father? Uh, uh, David, I, I don't know if I can pronounce Thewlis. Yes, David Thewlis, a uh, uh, very well-known British, British character, character actor. actor. Yeah, people he probably was, remember um, him as a Remus Lupin in the uh, Harry Potter movies. Um, I remember him as the obnoxious prince in Dragonheart, the evil. Ah. Evil prince who gets half of uh, Draco's heart. Yes, there's yes. a fucking movie that I know I like more than anybody else. <laughs> That's a fucking good movie. And you know what? I'll go. I'll. I maybe I shouldn't say this out loud until I've seen the movie again. But I'll even go to bat a little bit for the much maligned um, Island of Doctor Moreau that he also stars in. Yeah, I I haven't ever seen that actually. I wanted to for a while. Then I just never did. Oh, maybe we'll make that a Halloween thing uh, or or whatever next month if it's anywhere streaming. But anyway, um, I love their performances in this movie. And Tony Collette's she's at that point where she just whatever she does, she just sprinkles with gold. She's yeah, amazing. I want a movie with her and Laura Dern where they're sisters, and <laughs> one of them is married to John C. Riley. <laughs> we could probably make that happen. Um <laughs> But she's uh, she's really good in this. Both of them are really good in this, and they totally one hundred percent committed to these batshit crazy characters. Mm-hmm. And there's, I think there's a lot of humor in that set piece, the dinner table set piece, especially. Yeah. Jesse Plemons is just in the corner, 
like stewing and brooding and just everything annoys him and he's making the situation worse. It's almost broadly comedic. It's almost like a bit. It's almost like a sketch. Um, Yeah. Yeah. It's kind uh, yeah, it's kind of true. It's here's, this is when I started to warm to the movie Mm -hmm. um, because literally everything up to this point, I felt like I, I was like, what am I why am I watching this? This is just <laughs> uncomfortable. This is kind of miserable. And this was when I was like, oh, okay, there, there's more going on here. And this is when also we start to really get clues that things aren't that, – that this isn't necessarily all real. This isn't happening yeah. in, in real time. Yeah, there's, there's, there's lots of surrealist stuff that comes in at this point of the film. And there's also, like, you know, characters start changing ages and perspectives. And it's almost kind of like the, like the final sequence in 2001 where the main character starts seeing himself in different ages. Um, yeah, and, and the first big clue for me was, like, the young woman's um, – like it, it, her career or her aspirations kept changing. Like right, sometimes and, her name changes in the. Uh, she's listed in IMDb only as young woman. Yeah. Um. It, even though for the most part they call her Lucy, I believe in the film. But, uh, yeah. And then we eventually we leave that set piece, and there's a B plot that's happening throughout the film with this uh this high school janitor, and we keep cutting back to that, and we. It eventually it ties in, and I was wondering how that was going to tie in, and I'm not so sure that it does necessarily in a very satisfying way. And my overall review of the film is there's swaths of the film, you know, these long conversation set pieces or even some of the surrealist stuff. Even It kind of like dips its toe into horror sometimes. Um, it's very playful genre-wise. There's a lot here that I really like and appreciate. I think it wears out its welcome. It's about 25 minutes too long, uh, at least. Yeah. And I the, fi- the final third of the movie, which I'm sure if you were to talk to Charlie Kaufman, he would say, no, that's what the whole thing's about. How could you do anything with that? I feel isn't as profound as it thinks it is or it doesn't quite tie up everything in a way that I felt terribly satisfied with. It just kind of goes into musical numbers and that kind of stuff. Again, very playful um, and I, I, I think the movie is shot really well. I love the way it looks um, and I think as far as direction goes, Kaufman is becoming a much, much more um, uh, stable and confident director visually um, to the point where he can now uh uh, rival some of you know Spike Jones and and uh, uh, Michelle Gondry and other people he's worked with. Um, he's good enough now that I don't think he necessarily needs uh, a steadier hand as a direction. I would say maybe a steadier hand as an editor would come in handy here because I think this, there's a lot here to like and there's some really interesting stuff. I, you know, at one point um, when they're in the bedroom, uh, I looked over at jesse plemons bookshelf and i see this big fat uh compilation book of pauline kale reviews and i go oh i have that book Hmm. and then later in there in the car ride they start talking about on a woman under the influence the Hmm. um the john cassavetes film which is kind of weird because we were just talking about john cassavetes and jenna rollins um in our uh, notebook review that we did 
Uh, but they start talking about the film, and then all of a sudden the character, the female character, starts reviewing the film in a very Pauline Kael-esque writerly yeah. voice. And it, I tried to look up the her review of that film while I was watching it to see if it was literally verbatim. And if it isn't, they were definitely going for that. Uh, unfortunately, The New Yorker has all the stuff paywalled, so I couldn't read it, and I wasn't going to go and dig out my my book. But that's when the the, the cool, theme, cool story cool story. Well, what I'm what I mean to say <laughs> is is basically the review that she's giving in the film of the John Cassavetes film is this sort of feminist critique of women written by men, and these kind of idealized. Yeah. Uh, uh, well, female characters. And at the beginning of the film, um, Jesse Plemons, as a compliment, compliments our main character as being idealized. And yes. one of the things that uh, Eternal Sunshine was criticized of at the time was falling into the Manic Pixie Dream Girl uh, trope. And mm-hmm. it was one of the films of many that were talked about at that time as as putting that out there. And this movie almost kind of like flips and puts the female that that the what would be the manic pixie dream girl as the main character with her internal monologue saying you know when am i going to leave this guy yes and there's also something else interesting going on too so i i had to look up stuff on this um because there was some stuff that was like there's a lot of references it's well, very literary, I, and there's a lot of film references. and yeah, yeah, but but I mean, like, I... So I took a certain meaning out of the movie, and then I, like, I wanted to see how it kind of compared to the book, which I actually have the audiobook. I just haven't listened to it yet. Yeah. Um, I've heard it's fairly and, different. Um, yes and no. There's things that are, but... Um, a lot of stuff is actually pretty consistent. And that, that's what I was wondering is because like Charlie Kaufman did adaptation, mm-hmm. which it was sort of an adaptation of the orchid thief, but it's actually about a guy trying to make an adaptation of the orchid thief and right. becomes a whole other thing. Uh, and, and so it was like, is he kind of doing the same thing here? Is how much of this is actually similar to the book? And more than you think is, similar like the the story of the the um as far as i can tell it is also very surreal and um and that's i think sort of the point Mm -hmm. uh there she has so i think sort of the whole point of this movie gets kind of summed up in that dinner scene we're talking about yeah um where she's having this conversation with the dad about art and at this point in the movie she's a painter uh, right, which that changes all over the place, too. Yeah, she's a painter at a certain point. She's a poet. She's also a physicist. Um, like, but She's everything you would want her to be. And that's, uh, well, it's, yeah, it's every, yeah. Uh, it's everything the story needs her to be at that point in time. Yes. And so she's having this conversation with the dad about how she she's not an abstract artist but she paints these sort of landscapes without characters in them and uh and he's like well you know if if i don't see somebody being sad how do i know i'm sad and and the whole point is like well you're supposed to put yourself into that setting 
and and that's how you know how you would feel and i feel that's a lot of what this movie is doing as well it's like because she changes so much because uh uh the characters are always sort of in flux. It makes it very easy for you to find those things that you can attach yourself to and, and put yourself in those situations and put yourself in the movie. So this was about the time when I was starting to come around to the movie was digging its hooks into me. Yeah. So by the time I watched the ending, I was uh, by the time we got to the end of the movie, I was pretty devastated, <laughs> uh, uh, and and I just felt weird and and it's not a happy and, film. No, it's not. It's not at all. And and based off of my interpretation of the ending, uh, it's pretty much a whole big bummer. Yeah, and but I I actually really liked the ending. I think. I think it came together in a way that, I mean, my interpretation was pretty similar to what I'm reading is the actual intent. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so I don't know. I, I I disagree with you on on the ending not coalescing. Well, I, I, I I guess my issue with the ending is that we start out. Um, at a place of where the movie is the most grounded and the characters seem the most normal and everything is the most relatable and then the movie like broadens more and more and more as the film goes and i was kind of expecting it to come back to just the two of them again and to have that moment where she's like well we got to end things or whatever and i kind of i admit that's the ending i sort of expected and then instead um the ending doesn't leave on her really well okay so the the, uh fair, fair warning i think we are getting into spoiler territory um, even though this is very surrealistic and I, I think you can draw sort of your own conclusion from it, um, if yeah. you're interested in this movie, you know, since we are talking about the end, now is the time to probably go watch <laughs> it. Anyway, uh, yeah, so I kind of thought the same thing you thought, but then based off the ending, so what do you what's your theory on what happened? What do you think? is those movies about what do you think is is actually happening here well i i think the movie is about um charlie kaufman's relationships with the way he's portrayed uh women in his past films because one thing you could say is that uh whether it being john being john malkovich or or uh adaptation or um eternal sunshine especially there's this kind of this kind of thing where he's sort of these like I said, sort of the sad sack guy who's put upon, like, the world is on his shoulders and, like, all these women characters always seem to wrong him. And you could interpret those films as being misogynistic. And I think this movie is almost a critique of that because, I mean, there's – I was thinking that and then towards the end it just starts to flat out say it, you know, almost more so than I would like, um, where the characters start to pretty much just say that out loud. Um and that so then when the you know when we conclude on something else more on the Jesse Plemons character and I I haven't I don't have a full theory about what that ending is supposed to mean necessarily or how it wraps up everything up um, but you know there's this whole idea of like everything sort of becomes a performance and I think the movie is sort of drawing those those uh, 
parallels between uh, reality and fiction. And at one point she talks about um, there's, there's almost kind of like a uh, uh, Richard Linklater vibe in some of the conversations in this. Yeah. Film, yeah. Um, where it reminds me that. a little bit of the before trilogy or like the movie slacker where people just talk and they sort of like um, pontificate throughout the film this but there's kind of a sl- oh sorry uh so there's an improv form <laughs> based off the movie slacker called the slacker mm-hmm. this is kind of a slacker uh this form. fits yeah yeah it's interesting so there's one of the conversations i have early on she talks about how fiction is a virus which is funny there's all this virus stuff going on right now but she talks about how uh yeah, fi- hilarious <laughs> knee slapper that thing but uh, she talked about how fiction itself is a virus that infects the mind and hope is uh, uh, an invention of fiction and uh, isn't, um, you know, scientifically accurate or whatever. Something to that effect. And I think the movie is sort of, uh, you know, turns reality more and more as the film goes into fiction. So the movie has to do with that as well. Um, which is why there's all the like literary references, the film references, and that kind of stuff. The movie sort of, you know, constantly deconstructing itself. Um, but yeah, so I mean, I get, I get all the themes. Uh, I just felt like it could have maybe brought it home a little bit more clearly. So, I would have liked it to end more on a um, less surreal note, especially given how bonkers it gets at one point. So how how I interpreted the the movie because like you said we have this whole story going on with this janitor uh and and we for a long time never really clearly know what's going on there and Right. Oh, and, by the way, about the janitor, there's this little like movie within a movie where he watches a trailer. Yeah. And that oh, yeah. is fucking hilarious. And, and it's like for whatever reason it's directed by Robert Zemeckis. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, that was one of my favorite parts. But yeah. okay, so but the, the movie within a movie is like a traditional romantic comedy yes. where you have the the very traditional ending where the guy has a big proclamation of love and the waitress gets fired and blah blah blah. But they still end up together. But they still end up together and it's actually cute or whatever. And then it ends on that uh, Robert Zemeckis card, and then you know that goes along with the whole premise that the movie's you know critiquing fictional relationships yeah and and it's critiquing art and it's uh uh so yeah you you definitely clung onto that the metatextual references which um i a lot of them i didn't get a lot i mean i got you know like the robert zemeckis and stuff um Mm -hmm. but like there's a lot of like painter references a lot of poetry references a lot of cinema references um that i i didn't get so your interpretation of the movie, and I think it sounds pretty valid, um, was pretty different from mine because I'm I'm trying to figure out like what the fuck is this story? <laughs> right, uh, so, you're just trying to find like the narrative, the, yeah, the spine it, of the movie, basically. And I don't know if this is going to help or hurt your viewing of it. Okay. Um, the janitor is Jesse Plemons. I kind of felt that too. Yeah, Jesse Plemons uh, uh, and. I think the big clue is like, you know, he, he references like seeing these kids like uh, who do all the he sees all these musicals that are all like fucking all the musicals that are done in high school and stuff. And, and, and there's 
this outsider quality that he has. Um, the girl doesn't exist. She's not real. Uh, she never. She's sort of a, a patchwork of past women from his life. Mm-hmm. Um, she li- the literally changes actresses midway through to um, to the woman he saw in the uh, romantic the, comedy. The oh, actress, right? Yeah. So basically, it's it's this guy at the end of his life who, instead of his life sort of flashing before his eyes, he's sort of forcing his life before his eyes. Um, and regretting everything he did or didn't do. And, and so, you know, it's a pretty big bummer of an ending because it definitely ends with him dying uh, in this way, you know. Lit- Not like lit- in a literal, like, death scene sort of way, but there's there's a, a there's metaphorical a transformative death. Yeah. death scene. Um, yeah, and, and it's just sort of like, you know, how how much regret he has living the life he lived versus sort of the life he wanted. Yeah. So again, yeah. by the, by the end of it, um, I thought it was pretty haunting and, uh, upsetting. <laughs> um, it just took me a while to sort of get into that headspace, I guess. Yeah. And it's, it's a challenging film and I'll say that about it, that, it's hard work, but I enjoyed doing the work. And I enjoyed kind of like figuring it out as it went and piecing it together yeah. and building the theories and that kind of stuff. And I think that there are some movies where that are hard work that it's not worth it in the end or at the end uh, there just isn't enough entertainment value to, to justify the hard work. And here or, I think there's... Or ultimately there's not enough uh, information... Or any concrete answers. And that's yeah. what drives me fucking nuts. I don't mind doing the work as long as I know – as long as I know there is something there. Like as long mm-hmm. as it's not just weird for the sake of weird, uh, you know, as yeah. long as it's not full fucking David Lynch. <laughs> well, there's a, there's a lot of those that I love, but um, I think this movie's – I'm coming around to some of them. But <laughs> I, I think this movie uh, – uh, this movie is um, – I think it has a has a, a lot more handlebars than yeah. something like a Lynch film or, you know, even even some of the more surreal elements that it's drawing from visually. Um and I think that the you know, there are individual scenes that are a lot of fun and this is gonna be one of those movies I feel that it's going to end up in like every audition book for for monologues. There's a <laughs> lot of really good monologues. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um uh, and there yeah, the I mean the writing here is is top notch and I think the performances are really good and it's shot really well. Uh so like I said, it's hard work. I it, I think it is long in the tooth. Um there's definitely a a place in the movie where things start to sag a little. But mm-hmm. I when it was all said and done, I was, you know, e- extremely interested in the overall effect of the film. So I recommend it. I'm going to give it a, a B plus. I think is this kind of a difficult film to grade because so many people are going to get entirely different experiences out of it. I think it's also going to, I, I think it's the type of movie that's going to reward a viewer up, upon additional viewings because there's yes. so much information. There's so many references. There's so much, uh, uh, like every, you know, five minutes of the movie, there's like 
a different literary reference that flew over my fucking head. Right. Uh, and they so, come on so so casually that you don't catch it until you're in the middle of it. Sometimes. Yeah. 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 Unless so you're like just said, hella well read. I started out first 15 minutes of this movie I fucking hated. Um, <laughs> but by the end of it, like I said, it, it just stuck with me. I, I also think maybe I wasn't in the right headspace when I started watching it. Mm-hmm. Um, I wasn't really, I, I don't know why, but I wasn't really like fully prepared for a full on surrealistic nightmare. Right. Um, From Charlie uh, Kaufman. Why would you expect that? <laughs> I mean, that's the thing from from some of the other stuff that he's written but not directed. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're pretty downtrodden, but there is there's a lot more hope in those movies than than this. Like yeah. if you can, this is like the pessimists eternal sunshine Um, right and that's why i compared it the most with synecdoche i think synecdoche especially the jesse plemons stuff and your interpretation of that um is very much like what's going on in synecdoche um interesting so uh catch that movie i think that's his most difficult film and i had a I had a tough time with that one, but oh, okay. I, I, in a lot of ways, I think this one kind of does what that one was doing a little bit better. But, um, you know, I'd be interested in hearing what you thought about that movie. Uh, yeah. Uh, so I guess if I have to give this a letter grade, I'm going to I'm going to give it an A minus because uh, there's a lot there's a lot going on here and there's a lot that works here. There's and nothing lazy about it. No. And and again, I I, like you said, I don't mind doing the work as long as I feel like that work is going to get rewarded. And I think in this case it does. Mm-hmm. Um, I do agree with you, though. I think the editing could have – we we could have trimmed it to under two hours at least. Yeah. And I, and I think that would have – uh, but I don't know. Maybe maybe part of you know the drag is that it does keep going, like life. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's true. Um, uh, all right. Cool. Uh, yeah. Well, now for something completely different. We are going to talk about uh, The Frozen Ground, the film that was, uh, for some reason, trending on on, uh, Netflix. And you assigned me last week. Uh, I'll go ahead and describe this. I had to know. (laughs) Um, This was released in 2013 as directed by... Scott Walker, not to be confused with the politician, but this is his only film. There's this in a short. Um, That's actually really interesting. And it uh, stars Nicolas Cage, John Cusack, Vanessa Hudgens, and Dean Norris. Uh, and in this film, basically, this is just like a detective film 101, pot boiler, airport fiction kind of thing. Um, where. Well, it's based on uh, a true think, story. Yeah, I think that's worth yeah. noting. It's it 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 has that feel of paperback novel, but I think it's it's worth mentioning that unlike I mean, why well, you know, there's a lot of paper uh, airplane true, true fiction crime too. Yeah, um, true crime. Yeah, and this definitely feels like that. Yeah, so this is about a, a real-life serial killer who lived in Anchorage, Alaska, um, who was. Uh, killing and torturing and raping uh, prostitutes. And 
the character played by Nicolas Cage is a is a police officer who has two weeks left before he retires because of course. <laughs> I, I know. <laughs> Holy shit! I I want to know in real life did that cop actually have two weeks left? Because uh, that's right. fucking yeah. Before he was like, him and his course. wife are finally gonna move and get out of this hell town. Um, but of course he's dragged in for one last case, this case being this missing prostitute and, uh, this, uh, one, one of the prostitutes actually managed to escape. She's played by Vanessa Hudgens here, um, doing her like Kmart Mila Kunis and she, uh, it was able There's to actually. There's a lot actually... of Kmart acting in this movie. <laughs> there is. <laughs> it's kind of, this is kind of a Kmart movie, but. There, well, there's a lot of dollar store acting in this movie too. <laughs> Um, she managed to escape from the, the killer who is played by, uh, John Cusack, uh, the sort of unassuming family man who owns a restaurant and, you know, whenever his wife is away, he has this like torture dungeon that he does his thing with, but she somehow managed to escape. So she was able to ID him and, uh, they, the police department is trying to collaborate or cooperate with this prostitute to be able to finally um, get enough evidence to take this guy down. And there's a lot of like things in the air as far as like where she, you know, is John Cusack going to try and find her and kill her before she can, they can find the evidence and like 50 cent is a pimp and he's also producer of this film. So take that for whatever. Um, I didn't. I didn't catch that. That's actually really funny. <laughs> um, and yeah, so it's kind of like the seedy underbelly of Anchorage, Alaska. Uh, okay, but before we get too too into our reviews, yes. I have to read you uh, a oh, user review on Rotten Tomatoes for the Frozen Ground. Please do. Uh, an unknown author says four bags. I thought it was a sequel to Frozen with Vanessa Hudgens as another princess, but she was actually a whore here. She would have been better as a princess because I know whores, and she does not look like one. She doesn't have track marks, and the only charges Hudgens has is on her Amex. Cage and Cusack are the best here, and Cage is a little more reserved than usual. Sure. Cusack, <laughs> Cusack is a creeper. And Michael Douglas wasn't available to play the bad guy. He would have been even better. I guess. <laughs> we, we were glad to be a part of the huge movement that revitalized this classic and made it number one for a week during the summer of 2020 in the year of the Cove. We made it happen, just like Cage saved lives in this movie. <laughs> I wish the other Cusack had made an appearance because she was the best bad guy in family Adam's family values. Yeah, she was. And thinking of her kept me warm during this chilling thriller. Wow. 50 Cent was a skinny pimp in this movie, too. <laughs> and, and he gets shot, just like IRL. <laughs> Some people are born to play a role. He also had the song P.I.M.P. They should have played that in the movie. <laughs> they should have. Uh, it's a pretty accurate review. Yeah, and I think that review takes this movie about as seriously as anybody should. Right. So it's interesting, though, that it, there's this talk of a movement. And I do think this movie maybe possibly got memed into that, into trending. I don't know if the fandom, if we want to call it that, for this film is entirely unironic. 
Yeah, but that's what leaves me sort of confused here. Right, because it's not so bad that it's bad. It's so bad it's good. It's just a whatever Lifetime movie. It's Yeah, it's just like a... I'm not even going to – it's like a low to middling level thriller. It's like – it's kind of boring. Uh, There is one scene that is pretty laughably funny when he's like interrogating John Cusack and has to like keep running back to making these phone calls. And like that scene was real bad. That was dumb, dumb. There's Uh, a couple scenes that that reach camp level – but for the most yeah. part, this is just kind of like you said, lifetime movie. Like it's it's I don't like it. Kind of feels like you know a a dumb episode of Law and Order for a yeah, lot of it's it. It's very televisual. It's also not filmed very well. There's a lot of like unnecessary like shaky cam kind of yeah stuff going on. Um, yeah, there's not a lot of thought when it comes to camera placement, except no. when Vanessa Hudgens is stripping. Yeah, then uh, the camera all of a sudden decides to to take a, a very distinct point of view. But for the rest of the ridiculous film, ridiculous because it's so it's so leery and male gazy when the whole point of this movie is like she she could have a better life than being a prostitute. Well, clearly your camera doesn't think so. <laughs> Although uh, Vanessa Hudgens doesn't get nude in the film or entirely nude when it's an R-rated film and yeah. there's there's strippers in the background who are who are bearing everything there you know contract contractually she's not that far away from Disney yet but she's yeah, trying yeah at the uh, least at this point she was this would have been around the same time she, uh maybe a, by a couple years later or so she had just done Spring Breakers too oh interesting that that's kind of interesting. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, she's definitely trying to shake that family friendly. Disney know, around thing. this point in time, she's like actively trying to be edgy, right? Uh, and and she's also actively trying to be a good actor. And she's not like she's okay. She's honestly most of the acting is pretty bad. Um, there's a lot of really bad character acting, like the other cops. That yeah, are, like, Dean Norris is like really bad yeah and he's I mean, he has nothing to do but he um but it's not that far of a away from his role in in breaking bad it's just all yeah. of the the tropes that we associate with that kind of character uh yeah a lot like i kind of knew what this movie was at the first scene when like there's these cops that we don't know and they're like giving this other cop shit and they're just like such bad bullies. Mm-hmm. They're just like, whatever rookie, you're going <laughs> to fucking end up fucking sucking and fucking you fucking suck. And right. It's like, yeah. okay. Like nobody, even bullies don't really act like this. <laughs> uh, well, and the, the rest the, I mean, if the screenplay feels like it's just a patchwork of scenes from other movies. Like every single scene oh, you've yeah. seen a thousand times. This movie is just a collage of cliches. There's nothing yeah. here um, it, remotely yes. originally, e- even though it comes from a supposed true story and da da da. Um, and I don't know. Is I guess some of the stuff with Cusack is so I kind of Cusack, effective. I think he thought he was in a very different movie. Yeah, he, um, he seems to be working harder than other people in the film. And yeah, sometimes like, not to his benefit. 
No. Uh, well, here's the thing. I think he's trying, and if everybody was working at his level, I think there's he was churning out a good performance. It's just the context of it right. is not working with him. Um, he's so slumming he sticks it out. Yeah, yeah, he sticks out like a sore thumb. Yeah, uh, and also I, I like when John Cusack plays a weird sleaze bag. Like yeah, he does it good. He does it. He does it pretty well. Um, it, he does lots of ticks and weird mannerisms and stuff. And uh, remind me a little bit of his like cameo in the Paperboy, which I don't know if you ever saw that, where he relieves himself in front of everybody while. Whatever. You just have to see that movie. That movie is just... That movie has all the body fluids. I don't know. I don't even see it. Uh, uh, yeah, so I think, like, him and Vanessa Hudgens are trying their hardest Yeah. Uh, to save this. Uh, Nicolas Cage is kind of sleepwalking through it, which is interesting that of all the Nicolas Cage movies, this is the one that's, like, trending because... Right, you it's know, one of his more subdued performances, like that review said. It's it. Um, he he's not going. Page. He's not doing Portocol New Orleans. No, <laughs> I get. I don't know. I guess this. Sure, this movie's whatever. I I thought it was actually pretty boring. My other theory for why this movie might have might have trended, and um, I don't know. Well, I I have nothing to back this up, but. There's this, I, there's this whole like QAnon thing going on now of like crazy conservatives who think everybody ever is a pedophile and that there's like, and this whole like um, concern for child trafficking and stuff. And there's all like the, speaking of Netflix, the whole like cuties controversy and blah, blah, blah. And I feel like maybe this movie resonated with that audience before they deleted Netflix? I don't know. I don't... I I don't think so. Or maybe it's th- just I, sort of the popularization generally of true, con- true crime. I, I think it's more that mixed with the memification of Nicolas Cage. Uh, yeah. uh, you know, like, he can sell a movie based off of, you know, on, on a scale of one to... That's why it surprises me, is because he's, like... he He's subdued. He, he's not... It's not, not his funnest performance, no. Yeah, and so I, I think people were kind of between that and the true crime fascination in this country right now, mm-hmm. which has always been around, but it's, you know. It's having a moment. Pe- yeah. yeah uh, I think that kind of set it to t- trending, and then once it was trending, people were like, oh, we did exactly what we did, and we're like, why is this trending? Let's check it out. Yeah. But, I mean, if you haven't seen it, I'd say you can skip it. There's not even really anything worth memeing here. It's just sort of boring and it's just whatever. Bright. Yeah, it's yeah. just like every like bad '90s post Silence of the Lambs ripoffy thing. Um, yeah, I mean this is definitely on the lower end of those, but yeah, it's not it's not worth watching. No, I don't think so. However, I will say when I was watching it and. Um, it made me think about, uh, like, the better versions of this movie. You know, mm-hmm. you're, like, Seven or Zodiac or uh, or um, Silence of the Lambs or, you know, whatever. You know, pick your favorite, like, neo-noir um, detective film. 
and uh, th- there are some there's some uh, criticism levied to even the best of those films that you know they're just pot boilers. It's all just trash. You know, airport fiction and you know, girl with the dragon tattoo or whatever. It's all just kind of the same and why are we elevating this to art and blah, blah, blah. But then when you see a movie like this and you realize how well made those other movies are, like, yes, they're tropey. Yes. They're, um, they're definitely like genre films and they're definitely like working within, uh, within a genre and going by those conventions, but the style of those movies and the, the, the vision behind those movies completely changes the viewing experience. Like there is a bad way to do this. Yeah. And that's this movie. Yeah. 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 No, I, I agree. I think, uh, Zodiac is a perfect example because it's based off of true events. Mm. Uh, it's, it's, sort of a weird story because it there's no real resolution it kind Mm -hmm. of peters out um but the movie makes it work because david fincher is so comfortable in this world yeah uh whereas you know and even just the scenes scott walker yeah he definitely likes this world but doesn't know what he's doing no i think he thinks you know there's a formula here i'm just going to stick to it um but even the scenes where something not genre is happening, which almost don't exist at all in this movie. Like every scene is expository or something. Um, Mm -hmm. But in a, in like a Fincher film, um, you know, you get those great character moments and you get, you know, to know the, these people, even if they're living in sort of an airport fiction world, you, you get to know them on a psychological level. So all of that, like hokey B movie stuff punctuates a lot harder yeah, because you actually give a shit what happens to the characters. Like, yeah, uh, I think that the best example of this is the Nicholas Cage's wife's emotional arc, uh, <laughs> where she's just like this fucking. Uh, uh, was there an arc, like, <laughs> or was it know, just like? So- it was just like so- thirty minutes past, and she's a completely different character. <laughs> yeah, she's just like. For most of the movie, she's sort of this put-upon, shrewish wife yeah. who's just on Nicolas Cage because he's not spending enough time with the family. And, and mm-hmm. she thought he was going to be quitting this this job in two weeks. but the, And then, literally, between scenes, she's just like, I know you have to save <laughs> You have to save this girl. Yeah, I'm... You know what? I didn't want to move anyway. I love I like this house. Life. Yeah. It is... <laughs> That, that was funny. Yeah, there there are moments where it's yeah. like, okay, if if we had just had more of that, I can see why it would go viral. But instead, it's just this sort of weird, right, blah movie. Yeah, I think with the right friends and you know possibly a chemical alteration involved, um, or if you have clever like. Comedic no, friends I, or whatever. Think, I, I think this is riff tracksable, but you would have to work harder than you need to. Yeah, there's better movies to do that too. Just, yeah, just watch those instead. Yeah, um, yeah. This is whatever. Uh, for the next streaming homework we're going to be doing, I we're heading into the horror month, 
And we're going to start uh, taking from uh, other streaming services, noti- notably uh, Shutter, which if you're not a subscriber to Shutter, there's very easy ways to get uh, free access to it for 30-day trials and stuff like that. So look for those online. Or I I did it last year and ended up just keeping the service because it's really cheap. It's only like five dollars a month. Um, we're going to be not watching. Sponsored by Shutter. We aren't sponsored. I'm just letting people know. But you get uh, that one for free, Shutter. <laughs> Um, uh, I'm going to have us watch the film Images, which is uh, directed by Robert Altman in 1972, I want to say. And uh, that'll be the first in our horror-a-thon, I guess. And we're going to be... Horror-tober. Horror-tober. We're going to be thinking of different kinds of things, uh, segments and whatnot, for for the next few episodes. So, you know, check that out. Halloween is not canceled. Trick-or-treating might be canceled. Getting drunk in costume with uh, more than three friends might be canceled, but Halloween is still fucking happening. I don't give a shit if we're <laughs> staying at home. What are you doing on Halloween anyway? Right, right. Uh, you can definitely buy candy and eat it yourself at home. Yeah. But, uh, Get blessed and watch some horror movies with us. <laughs> If anybody has anything to say about any of the movies or topics that we discussed on this episode or past, you can email us at mcguffinpod at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter or Instagram at mcguffinpod. You can follow me individually at Cassidy um, on both uh, Instagram and Twitter as well. Um, and then if uh, this podcast is also archived over at the MacGuffin's website, MacGuff.in, and when you're there, be sure to check out the other articles and reviews by the rest of the MacGuffin staff. And Keith, where do you want to direct people? Uh, You can follow me on social media, even though social media is uh, much more viral disease than COVID that is going to kill us all. Um, But you can check me out at Twitter, at KeithFosterKid. Uh, and Instagram at Keith Foster Kid. I also have uh, an art account um, at Sticky Note Aesthetic. Yes. Um, is there anything else? I don't think there is. So I think that's the end of the episode. I think it is. I'm saying take the darn nightgown to the basement. Live dangerously. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>